This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance our educational experience. The content while edited by residents is not verified by hosts or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions represented are our own and are not representative of employer. Please keep this in mind as we enjoy our podcast. Welcome back to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Hey guys, we have a legend of the podcast returning for yet another episode. We have, we're welcoming our now chief resident, Trevor Stevens. Trevor, it's great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me, Dr. Friedis and Dr. Swanson. You know, I think you only called me a legend because of my old age now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not true. You know, you, uh... Gave us episodes as a second year, now a third year, and now a uh, chief resident. So I think that qualifies for the Podcast Hall of Fame, if I'm True. not mistaken, Tara. But since we know you so well on this podcast, why don't you give us maybe a brief introduction, but also a new fun fact about yourself? Oh, man. Putting them on the spot. I know. Yeah, I think I've already given you all of my, my fun facts. But <laughs> I was born in Denver, Colorado, uh, moved to South Alabama when I was a kid, uh, went to medical school at, at the University of South Alabama, go Jaguars. Uh, and then I moved up here for residency, uh, where I'm now applying for a nephrology fellowship with an interest in uh, kidney transplants and glomerulonephritis. Uh, just an interesting fact about me uh, is that I love to play basketball. And <laughs> when I was in high school, I was the only person on my team who was under six six feet tall. Wow. And so in the directory, in order to make our team look tall, they just listed us, they just listed me as six feet. <laughs> which for they those, just rounded up. That's yeah, awesome. it's rounded up. For those that don't know, I'm actually about five, five feet, uh, six inches on a good day. Exactly. Well, awesome. Well, thank you for that introduction for uh, our listeners who are not as familiar with you, Dr. Stevens, but I hear we have a very interesting case for us today. We do. Today we have a case brought in by one of our excellent residents, Dr. John Davis. So I have to give him a shout out for bringing in this amazing case to one of our morning reports here. What we'll do today is we'll kind of run through the, the case, go over kind of a problem representation and talk about our differential diagnosis. So should we just go ahead and get started? Let's do it. All right, so today I'm bringing you a case of a patient who has had several months of a cough. So in general, this is a 70-year-old female. She has a past medical history of choroidal melanoma of the right eye. It was treated in the, in the past with plaque brachytherapy oh, okay. in January of 2021. She also has a history of hypertension, uh, type 2 diabetes, hypothyroidism, and iron-deficient anemia of unknown cause who once again for several months uh, was just presenting with a chronic non-productive cough. She did have sinus drainage with it, and her symptoms really persisted and started to get slightly worse, which is why she presented to our clinic. Just notably, her medications when she presented to clinic were hydrochlorothiazide, lisinopril, levothyroxine, metformin, uh, and then she was also taking iron supplementation. And social history, uh, just notable, she did not use any tobacco products and did not use any alcohol or recreational drugs. So I think let's just take a pause there for our listeners to think about what questions in particular you would like to ask this patient. All 
All right, listeners, now that we've unpaused it and thought about some of the questions we'd like to ask, uh, I'm just going to open it up to Dr. Friedis and Dr. Swanson here. What are some of the questions you'd like to ask this patient? I think, you know, especially for interns or medical students, when you're going to take a history, it's really important to guide your history taking by thinking about the differential diagnosis beforehand. We should think about the most common causes and then things that you can't miss. And then you should guide your questions to the patient with those. I would ask more about the sinus drainage, whether they're coughing more at a certain time of day, whether they're, I know they don't use tobacco products, but if there's tobacco products in the household, I'd also ask about allergens and all of that kind of goes for more of like asthmatic cough and allergic rhinitis as common causes. And then the other thing I would think about too is that GERD is a very big cause and she takes iron pills. People can get gastritis and esophagitis and, and that can cause reflux and reflux is pretty common. So asking about reflux symptoms and whether or not they've had a trial of PPI in the past is also something I would talk about. Yeah, those are great questions. Just our common causes of cough, as you guys have noticed, is post-nasal drip. Uh, it doesn't change throughout the day. Uh, and this has actually been ongoing even before she had uh, the chronic cough. Uh, other things you had asked about uh, were potential allergens. Were there specific allergens that you were worried about? In particular, mold is an important thing. So especially like in ILD clinic, we ask a lot about if there's been any water damage, any mold or nesting animals like rats, pests, any infestations of anything in their house. And then uh, if they get really bad seasonal allergies or they have a history of ATP, that would be helpful to know. Yeah, those are all great. Thinking about the allergens is really an important part of that uh, history taking. So when we asked her about it, um, more specifically, it does. Uh, she does own two parakeets and she owns a dog uh, as well. Uh, they always joke that if uh, you want to learn what their occupation or what their hobbies are, what pets they have to consult pulmonary, because uh, we're always asking those types of social history questions. I was going to say, somebody with a parakeet in palm clinic is like, gold, you know? It is gold. I think I've asked every person if they have a bird. (laughs) Why are you asking that? For good reason. I have chickens, but I don't keep them inside, you savage. (laughs) Well, you never know. (laughs) Yeah. And and for good reason, we're we're trying to identify that allergen as well. Yeah. And and then Dr. Friedis, you had also talked about a reflux. When we asked this patient about reflux, uh, she said that she did not uh, have any heartburn-like symptoms. One of the first things that I kind of latched onto in the medication list, at least, was the lisinopril. Um, so just thinking through medications that can cause a chronic cough, asking how long she's been taking that, if that's a new medication for her. And just like Jared was saying, uh, another big exposure question that we ask about, especially Jared mentioned in ILD clinic, not that this patient necessarily has a diagnosis of ILD at this point, but thinking about other exposure, she does have this history of cancer. It sounds like she had brachytherapy, but just thinking about radiation and other exposures like that kind of causing a, a more fibrotic type picture? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, she's been taking that uh, lisinopril for several years now for her hypertension. So it's not a new medication. I love the way that you guys are using that differential diagnosis that you're already formulating to, to ask your questions. So, But moving on for a little bit, when she came into a clinic, her vital signs when she came in, her blood pressure was 128 over 85. Her heart rate was 67. She was afebrile and she was satting 98% on room air. Just in general, she was not in any acute distress. Her nasal turbinates were non-erythematous, and she was clear to auscultation bilaterally. Her cardiovascular exam, there was no murmurs, rubs, or gallop, normal rate, regular rhythm, with no edema or clubbing uh, noted. 
a few of her labs when she came in, her hemoglobin was 10, white blood cell count was 8, and her platelets were 335. Notably on her BMP, her bicarb was 20 with a creatinine of 0.83, but otherwise unremarkable. And then her liver function tests uh, were unremarkable as well. So let's just pause here for a moment to kind of formulate what our one-liner would be for this this patient and what our problem representation is. So for our listeners, why don't you guys go ahead and pause and think about a problem representation for this patient. All right. Well, now that we've unpaused, uh, let's run through our problem representation. So for those that don't know, our one-liner is broken down into three different parts. It's our who, which is our patient. Um, our when, so what is the timing and the tempo of the disease? And remember, our when is broken into, we change specific time, hours, days, months, uh, to acute, subacute, and chronic. And then our when is our clinical syndrome. So let's just kind of put together uh, that problem re- representation for this patient. So this is a 70-year-old female uh, with a past medical history of hypertension on lisinopril, as well as iron deficient anemia of unknown cause and prior choroidal melanoma status post plaque uh, brachytherapy, who presents with a chronic progressive non-productive cough and sinus drainage. Excellent, Trevor. Problem representation is really important, especially complex patients or critically ill patients, because what you're trying to do is paint a picture of what's going on with the patient and then also where you, where are you going to take us and what illness scripts you're hinting at. Yeah, and I think what's really important, too, is to always be reevaluating that problem representation as the story changes. For example, if you learn that she has two birds, then you may need to go back to include that into the problem representation. So as new information comes out, you should always be updating that problem representation. So Trevor, it sounds like the lab workup was largely unremarkable. Do we get any imaging seeing her in clinic or seeing her in the hospital, do we have any further imaging to help narrow our differential? We do. We actually ended up proceeding to get a CT chest. And that CT chest showed that she had bibasilar ground glass opacities with central lobular nodules. Interesting. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Exactly. <laughs> right. So just kind of how Trevor was talking about adding to our one-liner, this patient, as part of her problem list now, has these bibasilar ground glass opacities with with centrolobular nodular thickening. Yeah, and once again, this is why we talk about it's important to update that problem representation. So knowing that extra data, Dr. Friedis and Dr. Swanson, what are you guys thinking for your differential diagnosis for this case? I think it makes other more common causes of cough, chronic cough, less likely. You wouldn't find these imaging findings with lisinopril induced, you really shouldn't see it in postnasal drainage or GERD. I think it makes other things, especially different types of interstitial lung disease, more likely, especially with her parakeet and heavy bird exposure. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis is something that would be very concerning. Yeah, just going off of what Jared said, I think that kind of the alarms going off in our head are that this lady has findings of potentially interstitial lung disease with this parakeet exposure. So HP is pretty high up there. But just thinking through other causes of ILD, Mm -hmm. um, she is a 70-year-old lady, so not our typical connective tissue disease demographic. But going down our differential, I would put connective tissue disease still up there, given that she's a woman, given these 
these CT findings of ILD. Um, I think connective tissue disease has to be up there. It doesn't sound like IPF, and of course, IPF, you're going to have certain imaging findings, and uh, it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion of other causes of ILD. It's more common in white men, older men, but again, you can always ask her a history about early graying in her family and fibrotic lung disease history in her family because there can be a genetic component of IPF as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I love how you guys are developing illness scripts for different illnesses to rank what is most likely for your differential diagnosis. So you can see how Dr. Swanson did an excellent job of identifying the illness script for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF and saying that this patient just doesn't quite fit that illness script. And so while she's considering it, it's moving into her less likely bucket uh, in her list of uh, differential diagnoses. You can also see the way that Dr. Friedis and Dr. Swanson think through things is they're also thinking about common causes or things that would fit that illness strip, moving it into the most likely. So Dr. Swanson and and Dr. Friedis, what would you guys list as your most likely diagnosis? I think given the the imaging findings and the parakeet exposure, hypersensitivity pneumonitis seems like the smoking gun in this instance. Absolutely. And then our last big bucket when you're thinking about your diagnoses is your can't miss. So what are some of those can't miss diagnoses that you would worry about that you would have to rule out in this patient? Especially if we're thinking about a diagnosis of HP, that's treatment is going to involve immunosuppression. So just thinking about can't miss in this patient is some sort of indolent fungal infection that could cause these CT findings before we're starting them on immunosuppression. Yeah, I love that. I love the thought process that you guys are going through. And I think you absolutely nailed the diagnosis. We ultimately diagnosed this patient with hypersensitivity pneumonitis uh, in our clinic. So I just kind of want to change the uh, script a little bit and then talk about hypersensitivity pneumonitis and just do some high yield teaching with it. So our learning objectives today in regards to hypersensitivity pneumonitis are going to be discussing just briefly the pathophysiology behind the disease talking about how you make that diagnosis, and then just briefly touching on that treatment, which can, as Dr. Swanson pointed out, include immunosuppression. So let's really just dive into it. So one, the pathophysiology of uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis is thought to be both a humoral and a cellular-mediated response that's provoked by an inhaled antigen, which is why Dr. Swanson and Dr. Friedis really did a good job of asking questions about allergens for this patient. There's really kind of two phases. There's an acute phase, and while it's not completely known what causes the disease, it's thought that it's mediated through IgG antibodies and an influx of neutrophils. This can then progress to a chronic phase, which is shifting from antibody-mediated disease to a T-cell-mediated delayed hypersensitivity, and this chronic phase can then cause fibrosis and granuloma formation. So that's just a little bit about the pathophysiology. Um, When you're thinking about the diagnosis of this, there's really three things that you have to worry about. One is is identifying an exposure. And while there's a long list of exposures and antigens that can cause this, even if we look really heavily for one, oftentimes in 30 to 50% of cases, we may not even find an exposure. But looking for that exposure is a big part of the history and the diagnosis. The two other things that we look for in diagnosing this disease 
our our CT findings and our radiographic findings in this disease. And then lastly, we're looking at histopathologic findings, either through a bronchoalveolar lavage or through a biopsy. So once again, let's just kind of run through it. For our antigens and looking at our exposures, those exposures can include all different sorts of things, uh, including birds, as you guys nailed down in this history, hay, uh, farming exposure, dust, mold, the list goes on and on. So really asking that detailed history is key to finding this. The second thing is looking at the imaging findings and seeing if they meet the criteria for it. There's two criteria for the radiographic findings. One is a non-fibrotic criteria. Remember, that is thought to be in the early stages through the antibody-mediated phase. With this, you're going to see two things, and this is really what I want you to want to hammer down. So on the imaging in the non-fibrotic, you're going to see diffuse lung infiltration. So that can include ground glass opacities, as we had seen in our patient. And two, you're going to have findings suggestive of small airway disease. Now, this can be small centrolobular nodules, as we saw in the patient, or air trapping. Mm -hmm. So that's in the non-fibrotic stage. But remember, you can also have a fibrotic or chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The findings with that are going to be a little bit different, but still similar. So two things to think about with that. In the fibrotic stage, number one is exactly as it says. You're going to find image findings consistent with lung fibrosis. So this is going to be more of reticulation within that uh that CT scan, uh, or findings of bronchiectasis. The other thing, which is similar to our the non-fibrotic, is you're going to find um, small airway disease. So similar, that air trapping uh, or the centrolobular nodules. So those are really the two things that I want you to think about. In the non-fibrotic, it's infiltration plus small airway disease. In the fibrotic, it's going to be signs of fibrosis, plus small airway disease. So really hammering home that point. The last thing we think about for the diagnosis uh, is our pathology. Oftentimes we use bronchoalveolar lavage fluid to help with the diagnosis. And in typical cases, you're going to have over 30% lymphocytes in that bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. Now with biopsy, we often don't pursue this because the yield of biopsy is really low. Oftentimes, it can only help in the diagnosis anywhere between 11 to 40% of cases, which is why we often don't do it because it's a high-risk procedure with really low yield. For the treatment of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, there's really five main pillars for it, and we're just going to briefly run through these. The number one and the most important, as Dr. Swanson and Dr. Friedis has said, is to get rid of the exposure. So what do you think we need to do in this case, Dr. Swanson and Dr. Friedis? Don't kill the birds. <laughs> yeah. Our pet You got to go on Craigslist. You got to yeah. put an ad on Craigslist. Yeah. About, uh, some, some parakeets some for adoption. ILD. Some free ILD. Some free Get rid of all your uh, feather bedding and feather coats. Yeah. And sometimes here, what we like to say is that, unfortunately, you just can't parakeep those birds. <laughs> sometimes you just have true. to let it para go. <laughs> Dang, two for one right there. That was good. But removal of the exposures is just critical. And one mm -hmm. of the most important steps you can do in hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Mm -hmm. Two, coming to what Dr. Swanson was talking about, 
is immunosuppression. Now, the data for treatment in hypersensitivity pneumonitis is very limited. There were really small randomized control trials that showed that glucocorticoids may have some benefit, but it's only in very specific cases. And these are patients who have subacute, so that it's not acute or chronic, it's the subacute presentation with persistent symptoms. They have to have a reduced DLCO or the diffuse lung capacity for carbon monoxide of less than 80% predicted, uh, hypoxia or radiographic evidence of diffuse involvement. So once again, it's a very narrow population that may benefit from glucocorticoids. And if you use glucocorticoids, there have been no trials to determine the optimal dose or duration. It's all expert opinion. We typically use prednisone 0.5 milligrams per kgs per day with a max dose of 30. That's tapered over about four weeks. But once again, the optimal dose and duration is unknown. The third pillar that they've been looking at are immune modulating agents. These are azathioprine and mycophenolate. And there's only been observational data that showed these agents have led to an improvement in the DLCO. Notably, they have not shown improvement in the FEV1 in these patients, and it's only in the chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis patients that show benefit in this. If you're a general practitioner, you should not be starting these agents without guidance from a specialist, in particular a pulmonologist who sees this frequently. Our fourth pillar is antifibrotic agents, and there was recently a new study that was published looking at nintitinib uh, in patients with non-IPF interstitial lung disease. 26% of those patients had hypersensitivity uh, pneumonitis in the trial, with the annual endpoint being a decline uh, in the FVC annually. And what it showed is that the nintitinib group only had a decline of negative 80, whereas placebo had a decline in about 187. Once again, this is only one clinical trial and evidence is still accumulating for this. So there certainly are limitations with that. And then our last pillar, um, after you've done these other steps, is to consider lung transplantation uh, at a specialty center. Wow, Trevor, thank you so much for taking us through all that. That's an incredible amount of data. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to be here with you too. Of course. Can I add two comments? So I know you talked about evidence of small airway disease and air trapping. Ways in which you can figure that out are getting a high-res CT because the high-res CT will have inhalational and exhalational films. And so you can see areas of mosaic attenuation and if those areas persist, I think on exhalational films, that can be evidence of air trapping. And so that can give you some guidance of this person may have hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And then some people also use on PFTs, there is a like a 25 to 75% ratio when they're looking at the FEC that if that's reduced, that can also be a sign of small airway disease. So using those two elements can help you get an idea of maybe there's some obstruction that's taking place at like the small airways and kind of inform you that this may put that higher up on my differential. Sweet. Well, guys, thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you so much. Trevor, thank you for delivering the dad jokes as promised. Yes, that's what we come to expect. So we'd be very disappointed if that wasn't in this. (laughs) 
Well, I'm, you know, happy. I always have more dad jokes in the bank if you ever need more. Sounds good. Well, thank you again, friend of the pod and legend, Trevor Stevens. All right. Catch you next time. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs>